Next week is our last week of the year, so we're, um, <clears throat> we'll be done, we'll have a good two-week vacation, we'll come back in the new year, and then I still have to see, uh, there's a couple of dates where I'll be traveling, uh, January and February I'm traveling a, quite a good bit, so there's going to be a couple of those dates where either somebody else will teach, uh, or you may just come and have lunch. Uh, but I'm trying to get that nailed down, so hopefully I'll be able to do that over the holidays. But we will meet back <clears throat> the first Tuesday in January, and so come ready and be prepared. But we have to finish Judges. we got three chapters in two weeks. I think we can do it, because it's all one story. Judges 19, 20, and 21. I can do it. With your help, all things are possible. Um, so 19, 20, and 21 are one story in the book of Judges, and it's the final story of Judges. It is the illustration par excellence of how awful Israel has become. People read Judges and they, don't, they miss this because they grew up thinking Judges is a story about Israel's superheroes. No, Judges is a story, as you've seen this year, of Israel's decline. And it ends with an emphatic exclamation point to show just how Canaanized and pagan and utterly abhorrent Israel has become. Now the thing about this chapter, this, this section, is that it takes place during the early period of the Judges. It does not take place after all of the events of the books of Judges. It's put at the end of the book, but as we're going to see, it takes place early in Israel's history in the period of the Judges. And so this, general, uh, this, this section gives us a general understanding of what Israel was like during the time of the Judges. And it paints a picture for us, and now we start to see by the end of the book just how bad things have gotten and how bad they've been all along. And that's the point of the putting this passage here at the end of Judges. Just like the last two chapters of the story of the Levite in, uh, from the southern tribe going up to the north and starting an idolatry center among the Danites, now we're going to see a Levite from up the north coming down to Judah territory and we're going to see the immorality that surrounds him. So two characters at the end of the book of Judges, both Levites from both parts of what would later become the divided kingdom, both acting in ways that are utterly contrary to God's commandments in Torah. That's how Judges end. So the first one we saw last week was the idolatry that Micah and the, uh, his Levite for hire led an entire tribe, the Danites, into. Now it gets even worse. And we're going to see how a broken relationship and a broken marriage and a broken family ends, snowballs into a broken nation, a dismembered Israel, and a civil war, a national disaster. And it's just this ongoing snowball effect of sin. Uh, it just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger until the end of the book. And by the end of the book, everything is just a disaster. And this is where we find ourselves. Chapter 19. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. A concubine is a second wife. He was already married. He takes another wife. Already there should be red flags. He's a Levite. He goes to another place, gets another wife. We don't know anything about his family or his first wife, but we know that he's already stepped outside of what God had prescribed in the beginning. God created male and female, and the two become one flesh. And already now, this Levite, that's the first hint of foreboding. 
is he takes a second wife, a concubine. A concubine was one who provided all of the enjoyment of a regular wife, did all the housework of a regular wife, but was not entitled to the inheritance of a regular wife or the social status of a regular wife. It was, it was something that, uh, it was a pagan practice that infiltrated into the people of God and it never resulted in good. So, uh, he... Let's see, and it took, took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. Verse 2, but she was, now NIV goes with unfaithful to him, but there is a debate about what this word is. There's a word, zona, which means to play the prostitute or to be unfaithful. So she could have been a prostitute. She could have been unfaithful to him. But there's another word, zanach, which is just one tiny stroke different, and it means to detest or to despise. And other ancient versions have that word here. And there's a toss-up about what's going on here. So there's one of two ways to read this. It says either his wife went, became unfaithful to him or his wife began to hate him or detest him. The second option I think is the correct one, although it could go either way, but I think the second one is correct as we're going to see his character unfold. Uh, it makes a little more sense of everything. But if you look at, look at the footnotes and the commentaries, if you're really super nerdy and want to get into that discussion. Um, but she detested or was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. So she leaves. She's a second wife. She's taken as a second wife. Something happens. Either she leaves him uh, or she gets sick of him and goes back to her father's house. That's an embarrassing thing. The, they would have had to have returned the dowry. Uh, it would have just been a big debacle. It's a breakdown of the family structure on top of a breakdown of the family structure, which is the taking of a second wife. So nothing is good so far. And remember, Levites' marriages were held to a higher standard than the other marriages in Israel. All the way back in Leviticus 21.7, Levites had a higher bar that they had to clear in terms of marriage. They couldn't marry someone who was divorced. They couldn't marry someone who was a prostitute or unfaithful. Their marriages were supposed to be held up as the standard for Israel. So already, this is just completely ignoring uh, everything that a Levite marriage is supposed to be. So she went, she left, went back to her father's house. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her, in Hebrew it says, to speak to her heart, to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. He took, she took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. The guy that her, his daughter had run away from, the father gladly welcomes him, shows him extreme hospitality. This is important. One, you did that in the ancient Near East. Even if it wasn't a strange son-in-law, you still showed extreme hospitality. It's like that to this day. If you go to Israel, especially in Arab parts, that has continued and you will be treated as royalty almost by people who welcome you into their home, into their tent, into anywhere and share with you everything they have. Middle East hospitality, it blows Southern hospitality out of the water. Like we can't even compete against that. But <clears throat> so he, he brings him in, this estranged son-in-law, and shows him uh, extreme hospitality. Verse 4, his father-in-law, the, father the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So he throws this lavish party. You know, the father-in-law, he's either thinking, well, I can get the money back. If he takes my daughter back, I can get the dowry or the uh, bride price. Or uh, he's just showing hospitality and he's like, oh no, my daughter's no longer a disgrace. She's no longer a widowish figure. 
you know, if you're divorced, you're basically considered a widow in the ancient world. And so now I'm, it's going to be right again. So the father is e eager to patch things up, most likely. Verse 5, on the fourth day, they got up early and prepared to leave. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So he kind of keeps him along. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, please stay the night, enjoy yourself. So when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. So four days now, he, what should have been three days. And this is only about 12 miles that he's traveled from, from his town and place in Ephraim down to Bethlehem, about 12 miles, give or take. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, refresh yourself, wait till the afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Big breakfast, big hearty breakfast before you get on the road. Verse 9, then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave his father-in-law, the girl's father said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay, enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. So he wants one more day with his daughter, one more day with the happy son-in-law, one more day of partying, one more day, you know, don't leave, don't leave. You never visit me anymore. Why don't you come see me? You know, that kind of thing. So he's really trying to keep things happy and together. And, and, uh, and the son-in-law says, verse 10, but unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his saddle, two saddled donkeys and his concubine. So he's like, nope. Can't do it. We've already stayed a day and a half longer than we should have. we got to go. So late afternoon, he leaves. And he goes towards what is now Jerusalem. At the time, it was Jebus. Chapter 1 tells us this, that at this time, the Jebusites still lived there. David hadn't captured it yet. It wasn't an Israelite city. It was a Canaanite city, Jebus. So they go towards Jebus, Jerusalem. It's six miles from Bethlehem. It's like from here to Carowinds. Like that's the distance we're talking about. Verse 11, when they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, no, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places, another six miles or so. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went in and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. So they, there was a city on the way, Jebus, big city, cosmopolitan city, said, hey, let's stop there. The servant said that. And the man said, no, 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 we don't want to stay with those foreigners. We're going to go to an Israelite city. So they kept on going. They went to Gibeah. When they got to Gibeah, complete opposite of what he experienced of his father-in-law. Nobody takes them in. This is, this is scandalous behavior for a city. This is an embarrassing thing for a city to have strangers come and appear at the city square and no one take them in. That's absolutely unacceptable. And it's in an Israelite city. Makes it worse. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, oh, the Levite's hometown, so, or his home region, so uh, one of his kin, old man from the uh, hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjaminites. So now we learn Gibeah is in Benjamin, but next tribe over is Ephraim, which is where this Levite and this old man are. And the old man is living, but he's not one of, but he's living among the Benjaminites in Gibeah. Came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where'd you come from? He answered, we're on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. 
We, both ha- we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants. Me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. So he's like, we aren't even asking for any food or any food for our animals. We've got everything. We just need a place to lay down tonight so we don't have to stay in the square. Verse 20, uh, NIV says, you are welcome at my house. He does not say that. He says, peace to you. Shalom to you. I don't know why the NIV overinterpreted that, but he says, peace to you, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. So this is shades of a story that happened about five or six books ago in Genesis, same chapter. Genesis 19. Judges 19, Genesis 19. Genesis 19, another traveler goes to a city, stops in the city square, no one takes him in. Finally, an old man who's his kinfolk take him in. That's the story of Sodom. We've seen this before. This, all of the vocabulary in this section, like a quarter of the words are identical to the words in Genesis. This story has the same number of words as Genesis 19. The phrases all are written to echo Genesis 19. Everything about this chapter is screaming out in Hebrew, Sodom 2.0. This is Sodom over and over again. The readers are primed to hear this as they're reading this in Hebrew. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, we know how this story ends. Things are not going to be good here. And they're right. While they were enjoying themselves, behold, NIV leaves that out, behold, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Literally, some sons of Belial is what the term in Hebrew means. And Belial, it means like uselessness or worthlessness. But later, it would come to be a demon, the name of a demonic force. And the term sons of Belial would be kind of a code word for children of darkness or children of Satan. Paul even mentioned this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, talking about what fellowship do the sons of God and the sons of Belial have. So this is way, way, way back before that at the time when it was first used. And it just means uh, worthless, evil, wicked men. Some wicked men, some evil men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can know him. It says know him in Hebrew, but the connotation is the word like Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. It means to have sex with. This is like just as it's the same thing in Sodom. It's the same thing that happened in the city of Sodom. It is the utter opposite. You cannot get more opposite of hospitality than wanting to gang rape someone. Like we can all agree that is the ultimate opposite, polar opposite of hospitality. And that's the point of this story is the men come out and not and it's and 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 they're wanting to do it to the man this is it's not just that these were this story gets told and the story in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah gets told these are this is about gay people no this is so far beyond gay people this is about gang rapists that are overturning all norms of hospitality all norms of sexuality all norms of propriety all norms of holiness these are these are not this is not about gay people people that are just attracted to the same sex. This is as horrendous as you can get in every aspect is what the men are asking to do. So it's a mistake to read this and then read this onto how we look at modern same-sex relationships, gay marriage, all that kind of stuff. We, we have to kind of put a distance between this because this is so much worse than that. Not that there's the, the, there is a view of sexuality and, and Christian sexual ethics have always remained unchanged, but we got to be careful about reading the worst stories of the Old Testament into something in the modern day 
culture that happens, which is same-sex relationships. So just be mindful of that, because some Christians mean well, but they get a little gung-ho, and they start reading this, and then this story views how they view gay people in general, and it's just it's not fair uh, to Scripture or to uh, the gay community. Uh, that's another debate for another time, and it has its own set of ethics and issues that we can deal with, but this is not the place for that debate. This is, this is assault is what's happening here. This is degradation. This is completely upending all norms of hospitality that should have been shown. So, <clears throat> the man, the owner of the house went outside. He said to them, and NIV says, no, my friends, but he doesn't say friends in Hebrew. He says, Achie, my brothers. No, my brothers. Don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Ancient hospitality, this man is the only one who has even a remote sense of it, but it has become an idol because now he's about to do something far worse than allowing a guest to be harmed. He's about to give his own daughter or offer his own daughter. Verse 24, look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now. And you can, NIV says use, but the word is abuse or humiliate. You can abuse them and do to them, NIV says whatever you wish, but that's wrong. He says, and this is important, you can do to them what is good in your eyes. I don't know why NIV obscures this. It's a major theological point. It's the whole summary of this chapter of Judges. Do to them what is right or good in your eyes. This is characterizes all of Israel at this point right now. This is an Israelite people. These are not the people of ancient Sodom. These are not people of Jebus or Jebus. These are Israelites acting this way. That's what's so scandalous about this chapter. And the Benjaminite is so scared and so uh, willing to uphold his male honor and his honor of a host. He's willing to literally throw his own daughter out. We hear shades of Jephthah. Only Jephthah was sorrowful over the loss of his daughter. This man is the one who chooses to offer his daughter up. As the book of Judges has gone on, the treatment of women has gone from high, as in Aksa chapter 1, and Deborah and Jael, all the way down to this, where women in this chapter are nothing but the objects of abuse. And it's only going to get worse. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the Levite, took his concubine and threw her outside. He seized his concubine, is the word in Hebrew, to grab hold and seize. And threw her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. So this man, this Levite, now we start to see probably why she detested him and wanted to get away from him. No matter how much merriment and sweet talking he did with her father at their house, when push comes to shove and his life is on the line and he's a little scared, he throws the woman that he was supposed to protect, to nurture, and to guard, he throws her out to a mob to be abused, raped, humiliated. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. He had been sleeping all night. He got up in the morning, brushed his teeth, packed the bags, ready to go. No thought at all for his wife that he had thrown out to the wolves. And Ivy leaves this out. Behold, is literally in the text says, Behold, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. She couldn't even knock. She's reaching for the threshold for some sense of safety. He said to her, get up, let's go. 
but there was no answer. The man put her on his donkey and set out for home. This is the total opposite of Aksa in chapter 1. Remember Aksa, Othniel's wife, who took the initiative, asked her father-in-law for, for uh, her inheritance rights and was blessed and given more of that. Aksa, who rode a donkey and got down off her donkey to approach and to demand her rights. Aksa, who was held up as a model of womanhood and, and, and um, virtue at the beginning of the book of Judges and was rewarded for it, now we see the opposite of that. This woman is left for dead, thrown up onto a donkey, and carted off like nothing but a sack of potatoes. Verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife. NIV leaves this out. It says he took a knife, seized his concubine. Same word for when he grabbed her and threw her out to the, uh, the, the gang. Same word. He seized his concubine, cut her up limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been done. Uh, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites come up, came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider. Speak. And Ivy says, tell us what to do. But it's Speak. And this is maybe the narrator. We don't know if this is the people that saw these mutilated corpses or the narrator saying, hey, nothing like this has happened since Israel came out of Egypt. And he's right. What's going on here? Why does he cut up the body? Well, this is it's a revolting story. It's a terrible story. It's supposed to be a shocking story. It's not, you don't hear this preached a lot. This is not going to be on many VeggieTales episodes. You're not going to get this on a Get Well card or a Precious Moments plaque. This is the R-rated section of the Bible. This is the NC-17 section of the Bible. This is the lowest that Israel goes. And there's some cultural things going on that help explain the behavior. Why does he cut her up? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 11, when Saul is trying to muster troops, trying to get the armies to come out, we read a story about him taking an animal, an oxen, and cutting it up and sending it out to the different tribes as a call to arms. And the message is, hey, if you don't come and fight with me, this is going to be your fate. So it was kind of a symbolic act of saying, if you don't come, may what happened to this animal happen to you. Before this time, we, there's, there's archaeological discovery, uh, a, a large group of writings called the Mari letters, letters from Mari. Mari was a city in the ancient Near East, M-A-R-I. And it was before this time, but it was around the same general part epic in history. And in the Mari letters, we actually read, there's a, there's a soldier or a servant, and his name is um, Badi Lim, B-A-H-D-I, Badi Lim. And he's writing to his king, and his king's name is Zimri Lim. And Badi Lim is saying, we got to get the troops. We, we, I need more forces. We need to get the army raised. And then he says, in the letter to his king, he says, I wish I had a prisoner who I could take and cut up and send the body parts out in order to muster the troops. So there's actually ancient Near East parallel. So what that lets us know is that in times of urgency, as a call to arms, someone or something would be cut up and sent out as a, basically a draft notice or, hey, get the troops, it's time to fight, and this is serious. So that was how it did in the ancient world. They would take a prisoner or somebody who didn't really matter in their eyes, use them to cut the body up and send it out as saying, hey, get the troops to fight, uh, which is horrible and grotesque. So in Israel, 
they did a little switcheroo on that, just like the other cultures practiced human sacrifice, Israel did animal sacrifice. So the other cultures, to muster the troops, they would take a human victim. Well, in Israel, Saul, when he wanted to muster the troops, he took an animal, an oxen, a substitute. And so that's part of the concept in the Hebrew mind of an animal substituting for a person. In this period of the judges, Israel has become thoroughly Canaanized. He does not send an animal parts cut up to, as a call. He sends the corpse of the woman that he himself cut up. He was a Levite. He was supposed to know better. He was supposed to not contaminate himself, certainly not by touching a corpse, certainly not by creating a corpse. He was supposed to be a husband. He was supposed to be a protector. We find out he was none of that. He was completely self-serving. And now, <clears throat> when his second wife, his concubine, his lesser wife, has been met with the most awful fate that could ever happen to a woman, ever, his response is to use that to get revenge. To use that as a call to arms. And look what he says in chapter 20. He says, we're going to go through part of this chapter and then we'll finish it next week. Then all the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, and from the land of Gilead, the Transjordan, came out as one man and assembled before the Lord at Mizpah. The leaders of all the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of the people of God. 400 elif of soldiers, or 400,000 soldiers, armed with swords. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So, all the people when they get these dismembered body parts are like, this is serious, we have to go. So they, all the, our troops from all the tribes, this has not happened once in the book of Judges. All of the deliverers that God raised up, none of them could muster all of Israel's troops. At most, they could only muster a few tribes. Now, at the end of the book, when this heinous act has happened and this affront to one man's uh, dignity and, and, and an act of inhospitality against him and a brutal act against his concubine, now finally all of Israel is ready to muster their troops. It shows you the, the depths that Israel has fallen and what it takes to rouse them. Not God, but this event is what's able to rouse them. So the leaders of all the people, uh, verse 4, so the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman said, this is his account, listen to it. I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now all you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. Did you hear his side of the story? He didn't mention why he was there. He certainly didn't mention the fact that he was the one who threw her out to the crowd. He didn't mention the fact that he was the one that let them do this all night, didn't do anything about it, picked her up in the morning like a sack of flour, throws her on the back of his donkey, and rides home. His version is completely mobilizing Israel to see this is all they're doing. And none of the blame, none of the guilt is on him. He gives a sanitized, whitewashed version. This Levite, supposed to be a teacher of the law, bears false testimony. Everything in this story is wrong. Everything. Verse 8, all the people rose as one man, saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. Now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it as the lot directs. 
We'll take 10 men out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel, 100 from 1,000, 1,000 from 10,000, to get provision, provisions for the army. So a tenth of the army is going to go get provisions because this is going to be a battle. We're not just assembled for a, a pep rally. We're going to war. So every one of you give a tenth of your forces to go get provisions because we're going to be here for a while. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah in Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for all this vileness done in Israel. So all the men of Israel got together and united as one man against the city. They could never unite as one man against the Canaanites, but they can unite as one man against their own tribe, the Benjaminites. The tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. So now they give the, the Benjaminites, because it happened in their tribal territory, they give them a choice. Hey, turn over these awful people. Look at Benjamin's response. But the Benjaminites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjaminites mobilized 26 elephs of swordsmen, or 26,000 swordsmen from their towns in addition to 700 chosen men from those living in Gibeah, so the town where it happened. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So that's a deadly marksman. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. So 400 Aleph against this 30-something Aleph tribe of Benjamin. Instead of turning over the people that did this horrible thing, Benjamin tribe doubles down and says, no, we're not only going to not turn them over, we're going to war against you. The entire society is broken down at this point. They have become like every other Canaanite city-state in the region. Tribal alliances and ethnic kinship takes place over God's teaching and over justice. And they're willing not just to overlook, but to defend the most vile act that's ever been uh, done in Israel up until this time. This is the, the, the case of what's going on in Israel. This is the spiritual temperature of the Israelites. We're going to pick up next week because what started again as one inter-family or inter, maybe even at the most a town event has escalated and spiraled out of control into a complete breakdown of Israel as a people. But it's really important to see because people that don't read the Bible come to this chapter and they're like, oh my gosh, the Bible says that women should be treated this way. No, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. The Bible says that this is a disgrace. Everything about this story is wrong. So beware of people when you see them read an article quoting a passage from Judges to describe the Bible as patriarchy. No, this is, this is completely a uh, complete breakdown of the system, the family and the, the male and the female relationship and everything. It's so important. I'm hammering this home because I see time after time after time people when they criticize the Bible or the biblical worldview or traditional views of gender, they'll go to stories like this as if the Bible is condoning this. The Bible doesn't condone everything that it reports. The Bible doesn't prescribe everything that it describes. And this is a case of the Bible describing it. And the whole point of the book of Judges is to show how evil Israel became. That's the point. And this is the final exclamation point. This is the, the star witness in the testimony of the prosecutor. 
is this event that happened and happened as we're going to see next week early in Israel's history in the land. Not after the time of Samson, but early in the judges period. But we're one minute over. So next week we're going to finish the book. We're going to finish the year. Have a great week and we'll see you then.